Welcome to season five of Penn South Africa's podcast, The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm your host, Nadia Davids, and I'm the current president of Penn South Africa. Every year on the 15th of November, Penn centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from this symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. And at the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering them a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with the 15 journalists and one media worker currently held in pre-trial detention in Diyarbakir in southeastern Turkey. In June 2022, 20 journalists and one media worker were detained following home raids in Diyarbakir. Numerous production offices for media were also raided, with police officers confiscating cameras, computers, news equipment and other documents. Although a gag order was imposed on the investigations, pro-government outlets reported that the raids were carried out as part of an anti-terror operation into Kurdistan's Workers' Party, PKK, their press committee. Most of the journalists detained work for pro-Kurdish media outlets. The journalists and media workers were held in police custody for eight days. Neither they nor their lawyers were given any information about the operations or investigations. On the 16th of June, the detainees were questioned about their journalistic activities and social media posts, and they were noticeably asked what they thought of the Kurdistan Workers' Party. Later that day, the court ordered the arrest of 16 of them on, and I quote, strong suspicion of membership of a terrorist organization. The others were released on probation and placed under a travel ban. They must also report to the police station twice a month. The raids on the 8th of June were among the biggest operations conducted against journalists in the predominantly Kurdish southeast of Turkey in recent years. Most pro-Kurdish and Kurdish-language media outlets were closed down, and several journalists of Kurdish or pro-Kurdish outlets are in prison on spurious charges of terrorism. Penn South Africa joins Penn International in calling on the Turkish authorities to uphold the right to freedom of expression and to release the 15 journalists and one media worker from pre-trial detention. You can read their names and more about the intricacies of their case in the show notes. In this eighth episode of season five, Efemia Chala chairs an absorbing and vital conversation with guests Mark Officer and Sarah Shulman about their brilliant books, The Pink Line and Let the Record Show. Together, they reflect on HIV-AIDS activism and the achievements of ACT UP, debate ideas of queer utopia, how change is made by coalitions, the politics of visibility, the fate of Roe v. Wade and gay rights, avoiding burnout and the way forward. Efemia Chela is a Zambian-Ghanaian editor who lives in Johannesburg. She has her master's in development from the University of the Witwatersrand. I feel like as an African, we still need our moment of visibility because we're at a different stage in time, but we can't pin all our hopes to visibility because it doesn't just work. And so I think instead of looking to the US or Europe as 
this model we must follow, it's important to see the pitfalls and to see how we avoid those pitfalls and build stronger, more resilient movements. Mark Fisser is the award-winning author of Tabo Mbeki, The Dream Deferred, Lost and Found in Johannesburg, a memoir, and most recently, The Pink Line, Journeys Across the World's Queer Frontiers. He co-edited the path-breaking Defiant Desire, Gay and Lesbian Lives in South Africa with Edwin Cameron, published in 1994. And his writing has appeared in many publications, including The Guardian, Granta, The New York Times, The Monthly Review, and Business Day. But even in, in the most difficult stories that I tell in The Pink Line, what I find so astonishing is the insistence that the people I write about have to lead their own lives, their way, and to fight for the right to do that, to exercise their agency. Sarah Shulman is a novelist, playwright, screenwriter, nonfiction writer, and AIDS historian. She teaches creative writing at Northwestern University in Chicago, serves on the advisory board of Jewish Voice for Peace, and is co-director of the ACT UP Oral History Project. She's the recipient of multiple awards and honors and is the author of 20 books, most recently, Let the Record Show, a political history of ACT UP New York, 1987 to 1993. Revealing the multitudes is a practical strategy because, you know, in America, we always have to contend with the John Wayne myth of the heroic white male individual who comes in and saves the day, right? But the truth is that Handfuls of individuals cannot make change. It's not only inaccurate, it's impossible. And in the US at least, change is made by coalitions and any kind of significant social change has been accomplished that way. But that often gets repressed because we have these myths of individualism. Thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. Hi everyone. Welcome to the eighth episode of season five of Pence of Africa's The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm Ephemia Chella, and I'm delighted to be speaking today to Sarah Shulman and Mark Avissa. I'm in Johannesburg, Sarah is in Chicago in the States, and Mark is in Cape Town. We'll all be recording in our homes or offices, and so you might hear some background sounds during the conversation. Welcome, Mark and Sarah. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be here with you, Ephemia, and with my old comrade, Sarah. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk to you today. I love both your books. They made me quite emotional and they beautifully reflected the diversity of queer life globally and the messy practice of movement building. They're literary monuments to your own dedication and the people and the lives within their pages. So thank you. I'll start with you, Mark. The idea of a queer utopia is complicated by the personal stories in the pink line. And in many ways, the West is still dubiously held up as the place of rights that enable queer utopia. Could you speak about the kind of queer utopias you encountered on your travels and some of the contestations that were taking place there? Thank you for that, Ephemia. I think that I set out to trouble the notion of a queer utopia this idea that there is a place over the rainbow that we're all going to land up in if we come out, come out wherever we are and fight for our freedom and, and win our freedom. I see how the notion is, is an important incentive for struggle, but I also find it to be 
problematic. And I say that from the perspective of a South African living on the other side of the supposed rainbow that the transition to democracy was allegedly going to bring us. And of course, there is no pot of gold on the other side of the utopia. There is no utopia. There is just struggle. There is just the road ahead. And I wanted to show that. And I particularly wanted to trouble the idea that queer folk in the West have, which is is that if you follow a particular liberal, one might say neoliberal, model of identity politics, that things will automatically get better. You know, it gets better is a slogan that was popularized in the United States. And I think that in fixing our gaze to that model, it's all too easy to forget or disregard just how difficult it is in other parts of the world and just perhaps even how inappropriate that model is in other parts of the world and the way people in different cultures and different parts of the world have followed their own paths to a form of self-expression or personal autonomy or liberation. Hmm. I think that's very true, and I think South Africa is quite a good example because in the legal sense, there are really amazing, very progressive rights of queer people. But South Africa is also the home of things like corrective rape, which lesbians suffer with. And there's a kind of gap between enshrined legal rights and community acceptance. And so there's always a bit of a contradiction. Um, and I think the other thing about a queer utopia is that it kind of insists on a linear journey. There's no going forward or back. It's just kind of an end point, which is static. And identity is never static. And experiences, places, movements are never static. They're more like the waves of the sea going back and forth. So it was very interesting to see that reflected in your work. I'd love to hear what Sarah thinks about this too. But what I will say is, is that so much of what I was reporting on in The Pink Line was the, um, the very awkward dance that is played out between uh, legal reform and social change. And it by no means follows, as we know so well in South Africa, that because you have the world's most progressive constitution, that a queer utopia is suddenly going to exist on the ground. Mm. Sarah, of course, you're a veteran activist um, and you did a lot of work with ACT UP and your book is an oral history of the entire movement. And for the uninitiated, for those coming in cold, could you speak a bit about what ACT UP was, its aims, its successes, and maybe in your view, its failures? So that's how Mark and I met, because we were both in ACT UP in New York. So AIDS was recognized by science in 1981. And for the first five years in the United States, 40,000 people died and the government did nothing and pharma did nothing. And then after a Supreme Court decision in 1986 that upheld the sodomy laws, a politicization occurred in which people with AIDS started to respond in a more militant manner. And the front piece of this is the creation in 1987 of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. The first branch was started in New York. It then had 148 chapters around the world. This was a direct action movement, the AIDS activist movement that accomplished enormous victories. It's one of the most successful social movements in American history and really transformed the virus. Unfortunately, it did not transform capitalism. So although it won enormous 
changes in terms of social services, attitudes, representations, and most importantly, treatments. It did not create an equitable healthcare system in the United States nor globally. And so all of these accomplishments really have only been available based on a person's position, their geographic or social position. And so in a sense, that's the great defeat. So we beat HIV, but not capital. Capital is a hard one to beat, and I think it was a very noble effort. I've been thinking a lot about activism and the kind of work I do in a new role, and I work with a lot of Marxists. And it's very interesting as a child of the internet, where politics is very much an online personality. Politics says something about who you are. And then there's kind of the more old-fashioned idea of politics, but politics is something you do. You go out and march, you go out and be an activist. And it's very interesting to see how there has been a sort of passivization of certain types of politics, but also because of the onslaught of capital, there's a need to return to those kind of techniques. So in the light of that, I was wondering, Sarah, what kind of lessons you think contemporary organizers can learn from the ACT UP movement, especially about broaching differences amongst activists? Well, there's some really big takeaways. You know, one of my jobs, and I interviewed 188 surviving members of ACT UP over 18 years, in addition to being an AIDS reporter starting in the early 80s and a member of ACT UP. So I have a lot of information about the whole narrative arc of this, of these events and in trying to cohere why ACT UP was successful to the extent that it was, I think the biggest takeaway is that it was not a consensus-based movement. So people did not have to agree in order to go forward. There was a one-line statement of unity, direct action to end the AIDS crisis. And that was direct action as opposed to social service provision. But if you had an idea that was direct action to end the AIDS crisis, basically you could do it. And people would argue, we argued bitterly, we screamed and yelled at each other. This is like pre-gentrification New York City culture. But in the end, if you had an idea and I didn't want to do it, I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't try to stop you from doing it. And then I would go find my five people who wanted to do my idea, and we would do that. And through this kind of radical democracy, the movement had this amazing simultaneity of response with so many different kinds of strategies operating at the same time, using different aesthetics aimed at different social milieu and this sort of thing. And it's this big reach is really what made the paradigm shift occur. So I think the takeaway from there is that movements that try to force people to agree on strategy or to all share the same analysis, I think historically all of these movements have failed. I haven't found a single example. And that, especially in a time like now, when most people in the world need profound change, we need Big Ten politics where you can work with people when you agree with them, and when you disagree with them, don't work with them. But to demand that people be exactly like you is a fool's errand, and it's not going to succeed. So that's one of the big, big takeaways. Another big lesson from ACT UP is that there was no theory you know, it was action-oriented. And as one of the leaders, Maxine Wolf, used to say, when you go action first, your theory will emerge because you have to make decisions about how to do your action. And in discussing those concrete decisions, your values become clear. But if you go theory first, you become polarized when nothing is at stake. And so since, you know, the AIDS activist movement was based on the needs of people with AIDS and 
the clock was ticking and they had concrete things they needed to accomplish. They needed to be as efficient as possible. And theoretical debates would disrupt that. So the more in need you are, the more efficient you become. So that, that's a great takeaway. And finally, ACT UP was predominantly a white gay male organization. But there were women and people of color, and they had enormous influence far beyond their numbers because most of them came from previous political movements. Whereas the older white gay men had been in the gay liberation movement, but the younger ones, for the most part, had never been politically active. So women and people of color tended to have more experience. And with their savvy, the way that they proceeded was that they would never sort of stop the action to demand consciousness raising about sexism or racism. Instead, they kept their eyes on their prize, had their agendas, and marshaled the ample resources of the organization to fulfill the needs of their constituencies. So for example, there was a Latino caucus in ACT UP. This was the time of fascist dictatorships in Chile and Argentina. There were people who came out of the Mexico City student movement. There was a very wide range of Latino background and voices in ACT UP. And when the Latino caucus realized that people with AIDS in Puerto Rico had no support, they just went to the fundraising committee, got the money, and went to Puerto Rico and organized ACT UP Puerto Rico. Or when women with AIDS needed money to travel because they needed to testify at a hearing or something and people weren't feeling well and they needed hotels, we just got the money from fundraising. So it was like, you don't need to spend your whole life trying to change other people. It doesn't work anyway. Better to marshal the resources and try to win for your constituency. So those are three lessons that I think are very, very helpful. Yeah. If I can jump in here, if I may, what, as, I'm, as I'm listening to you, Sarah, I'm remembering about what was so attractive to me about ACT UP as a 22-year-old gay white man, South African gay white man, who had arrived in New York in, in, in the midst of this epidemic. And I, I'd had a little bit of politics in South Africa as part of the anti-apartheid movement. But really, I, I, I learned so much uh, about struggle from ACT UP. And I think the learning that I got from it, the lessons that I took from it, sort of informed the work I do up to and including the Pink Line. And as you spoke about the importance of the big tent, I thought that that's kind of one component of the radical democracy experiment that was ACT UP. The other component is a profound respect for all members or participants' own agency. This idea that if you do what you want to do as part of the struggle, and because you are doing it from yourself in a way that makes sense, given who you are and what your capacity is, it has worth and it has value, not just to yourself, but to the struggle. And this this lesson about agency, I kind of knew theoretically from the South African struggle, not practically because... I was a a white boy in in the middle class, so I didn't really have much to do with black freedom fighters who were exercising their own agency by resisting apartheid. In ACT UP, I saw it at work, and it's something I've really thought about as the most powerful driver for change and the most significant cause for optimism, even in the very dark and difficult stories that I tell in the pink line. And I think there's something quite similar you and I are doing 
in the pink line and in let the record show that in different ways i mean i think you somewhat more radically than me we are we are making space for the voices of others we are looking at the way people claim their own agency with their words and their actions but even in in the most difficult stories that i tell in the pink line what i find so astonishing is the insistence that the people i write about have to lead their own lives their way and to fight for the right to do that to exercise their agency and that is so important particularly in a sort of alienated and negatively politicized world where identity is so often instrumentalized where if you are queer and you come from the global south or or from eastern europe you know one side sees you as a foreign agent as some sort of uh avatar of decadent secular capitalism and the other side sees you as as a victim who needs to be saved you know oh you poor palestinian queer oh you poor ugandan queer we're going to come and airlift you out into our queer utopia of vancouver or san francisco or amsterdam and one of the things i'm really preoccupied with in my work and i think you are too is the agency of queer people themselves when they are so instrumentalized in in the way queer people and haitians and black people were instrumentalized as as carriers of germs in the aids epidemic as well well it's revealing the multitudes is a practical strategy because you know in america we always have to contend with the john wayne myth of the heroic white male individual who comes in and saves the day right and of course this person doesn't exist but we are always having to contend with this concept but the truth is that handfuls of individuals cannot make change it's not only inaccurate it's impossible and in the us at least change is made by coalitions and any kind of significant social change has been accomplished that way but that often gets repressed because we have these myths of individualism But you know the US right now is a complete mess and it's very chaotic. It's very hard to even say what's going on here from any point of view. But from the the queer lens, well we have this don't say gay thing happening in Florida that's brutal and crazy and schools are having to get rid of their gay books out of their libraries and all that kind of stuff. And of course, 54 million women just lost the right to abortion in the United States. and there's total chaos here. I mean, I don't even know what the reality is. We have these anti-trans laws that are of course very significant in the lives of trans people but are serving as larger propaganda machines and the sphere of the other that is now a power propeller and nationally and in all of our cities there's no housing. There's so many homeless people. So You were talking about utopia, the neoliberal utopia. That's over. I don't think anyone who's living here right now thinks it's a neoliberal utopia. I think people are very frightened. I think it is a very difficult time, and I think that's why it's so useful to have this kind of agile, internationalist, multifarious approach because the problems are so complex and they kind of compound. Mark? No, I was just going to say one of the stories I tell okay granted it's from a few years ago from prior to Donald Trump but I think it's very illustrative of the dynamic is of a a young Ugandan named Michael Bashaija who was forced out of his home his parents basically starved him out of his home when he was a teenager and he landed up on the streets of Kampala 
where he kind of hustled in a way to stay alive. And he was subject to the most abject humiliation and violence. And I met him when he had very bravely stood up in court against one of his attackers in, in a sort of homophobic entrapment. And he became somebody I was writing about. And he was really struggling in Uganda, obviously. And this is a very much a 21st century story. Social media was a blessing and a curse for him because it was through social media that he came upon this man, this gang who entrapped him and sexually violated him. But it was also through social media that he encountered a sort of global, globalized community of friends and comrades and supporters, and one of whom was a pizza delivery guy and a reborn Christian from Arizona named Shane. And Michael would, Shane became Michael's sort of big daddy, big brother. Shane would send Michael some money every now and then. And Michael poured his heart out to Shane. And, you know, his story was very difficult. And, and Shane was like, come to the United States where your rights are protected. Mm. Here is some money to begin your journey into exile, sent him, you know, a few dollars, not much. And Michael crossed the border to Kenya where he had the most terrible three or four years you know, waiting for asylum and for resettlement. And he, he finally was resettled in Vancouver, which he thought would be a queer utopia, right? So, so Sarah, you be very clear that New York City is no longer a queer utopia. And I don't know what Canadians think about Vancouver, but certainly Michael's idea was is that he was headed to a queer utopia. And when he got there, he crashed. I mean, big time. He encountered racism for the first time in his life. And it shocked and startled him. He, he understood it theoretically, but, you know, when it was thrown in his face every time he walked the street, it was devastating to him. And he was not taken into the warm bosom of Vancouver's queer community. And I suppose that's what I think about. I think about what this image of a queer utopia that is projected through media, through watching Pride marches in the West, watching Ellen, watching Modern Family, the kids are all right. Everything's okay over there. If I just get there, I'll be okay too. Well, it's not just queer utopia. It's the utopia. I mean, it's this is how our conversation started with global capital. We know that 1% of the population has seized 25% of the wealth. We have more refugees in the world than have ever been in history. And that is being felt by everyone on earth. So the idea that there's somewhere to go is over. You know, and that's, I think, more what you're grappling with. Mm. And it was mythological. It is. It is mythological. It's a very seductive kind of argument. And what I liked about the pink line was um, you go into these places, which are very difficult, where people have conflictual relationships about their gender, about their sexual identity. But there are parts of joy there. You know, the little Egyptian cafe where for a while they were able to create a safe space for them. And I was wondering if you could speak to those sort of things that you discovered in your travels, Mark. Yeah, well, I mean, that Egyptian story is one of the most poignant because I arrived in, in Cairo, sort of in the dying days of the Arab Spring, which was also the regime of the Muslim Brotherhood with, mm. in Egypt. But all the old patriarchal military shackles had been unleashed and there was just space. So many people came out on Tahrir Square in the Egyptian Revolution and now they were out and they were on the street and they were claiming space on the street. And the place where I hung out and where I met the people who I would write about was this amazing shisha cafe in Ahwa in the Borsa district of Cairo, 
which is downtown, which a, a lesbian couple had sort of claimed as space where queer people, including gender non-conforming queer people, could hang out and could be protected. And it was astonishing and beautiful. And very soon, I spent a few weeks in Cairo. And very soon after I left, there was a coup. And Al-Sisi sort of clamped down. And one of the ways he clamped down, one of the ways he showed that, you know, order was being restored was by crime and vice. And as so often happens, the easiest way to kind of exemplify crime and vice is to find the queers, to find the queens, and to lock them up for debauchery, fujur. And that way you sort of telegraph a message to the rest of the population, like, daddy is back in control. And so Egypt is particularly difficult and poignant because really almost everybody I met when I was doing my research there has had to go into exile because of the profiles that they had that were out. But against that, I hold an image that I actually borrow from the wonderful Irish writer, Colm Toybin, queer Irish writer, who, when speaking about why it was that so many Irish people, 64% in a referendum, voted for same-sex marriage in this supposedly strict Catholic country, and a similar percentile voted to legalize abortion the following year, when asked about why this was, he said, Ireland is, an, is, a, is a small society, and we all know each other, and we all have these islands in Ireland of tolerance where we, we get to know other people and, and respect them and love them for who they are. And it is out of that a movement of acceptance grows. And I thought about that image, and I thought about how even in the toughest places I visited, in Putin's Russia, in Uganda, in the post Egypt, there are these islands of support that people have around them, that people forge through their chosen families, through their activist communities, through their neighborhoods. The beautiful way I saw Pasha, the transgender woman I write about in Russia, who had lost all access to her son because it would be if she saw her son, the court ruled, she would be promoting homosexuality, which is a crime. So she lost all access to her son, but she was still treated with such affection and respect by the old lady who was her neighbor. And I, I saw that everywhere. And I thought about the potential of those individual relationships that are forged to, to create the kind of coalitions that Sarah mentions. I want to respond to that a little bit. Because in trying to understand why we're losing so much in the U.S. right now, I do think we've overstated victories. Mm. And I understand what you're saying, that in a person's life, if you don't have legal rights, if someone is nice to you, it makes a difference in your life. But I don't want to overstate the function of that. So two things that I think we really overstated here. One, so I'm looking about abortion and gay rights. Abortion was made legal in 73, but in 79, we had this thing called the Hyde Amendment that took away federal funding for abortion. And after that, only seven states funded it. So really, we only had abortion rights from 73 to 79. After that, if you didn't live in one of those seven states, you had to pay for it. And if you couldn't afford it, you couldn't have it. But we acted as though it was legal and available. 
even though it really wasn't. So it was an overstated victory. Similarly with gay rights, you know, gay men have done much, much better than women have in this country, especially in front of the courts. And whatever gay women have won, it's basically because we've been on the coattails. It's the closest thing to heterosexual privilege I've ever experienced because whatever gay rights have been won is because men have won them. Because primarily, you know, it's white male power and male money in a country where men earn a lot more money than women do. So we've confused, you know, gay marriage has been the replacement. We do not have anti-discrimination laws in the United States. We never have. The only right that we have federally is to get married, which is now coming under question, right? So we never really actually won what we needed. Now, the other thing from our side, the strategy that we were told to employ for the last 50 years was visibility. The concept was, and this is what you're just talking about, Mark, people don't know gay people. If they actually knew us and knew that they're related to us, that we're their children, all this kind of thing, they would be nicer to us. Well, that has proven to not be so. Now everybody knows gay people. People, right-wing leaders have gay children. I mean, and it's this vociferous, this incredibly powerful and visceral anti-gay thing that's coming up from the U.S. South right now. It, sh it shows that visibility is not, does not do what we thought it does. So what is the hatred? I'm not sure if I agree entirely. I mean, I, I, um, I critique visibility as a strategy in my book, and I believe it, it needs to be critiqued. Correct me if I'm wrong. My reading of what's happened, of what led to the don't say gay kind of wave of legislation, which is part of an, a broader anti-trans wave of legislation at state level, is that gay people became normativized in the United States, became sort of, through their visibility, through the status of some of them, from, you know, Peter Thiel to Ellen to Pete Buttigieg. So uh, you're talking here about respectability politics in a way, I imagine. Uh, not just respectability politics, but a certain level of visibility. And that if you look at the consequence of that visibility, as I understand it, it's that an increasing number of people counter to what church doctrine said came to believe that these gay people should have rights. And a consequence of that was that the religious right wing, which powers these movements in the South that you're talking about, had lost its boogeyman, had lost its evil witch that needed to be burnt at the stake, and cast around looking for a new one in a moment of perfect storm, at, at the very moment that the trans movement was really coming into its own in, in the middle of the last decade. And trans rights movement, and particularly the, the scary sort of horror show, as the right wing sees it, of early transition, became uh, the new boogeyman, the new kind of dog whistle. And my understanding of this new wave of legislation is, is that it's very specifically targeted at gender ideology, quote unquote, and at trans folk and, and gay just sort of gets caught in that crossfire. Is that not right, Sarah? No, I don't see okay. it that way. And let's say that uh, just to separate, there are specific anti-trans things that are happening all over the country. But the Florida thing is that you cannot teach about homosexuality 
It cannot be mentioned in under grade four. And after grade four, the parents can stop the child from it. So the school libraries in the public schools are having to get rid of all their gay books and this sort of thing. It, it's a purge. It's not, the, the trans attack is separate. My analysis is very different than yours. I mean, I think that this, what you're talking about, the people that you've named, this is like a fake public homosexuality that was created by corporations, that created a kind of gay person and a kind of gay experience that was really banal and was very acceptable. And what they were selling was that gay people are just like us. But anything that was about being different or having your own point of view has been repressed. Yeah. One of the casualties of that is gay culture, the gay movement, things that are actually from the grassroots where people really express their own points of view get lost because in our era, queer people communicated with each other and produced their own culture. But now most gay people get their information about gay culture from corporate product. That underground is not there. And you see the dissolution of the gay movement. The gay marriage campaign was this kind of insidious campaign that really separated AIDS from gay. It gave the illusion that gay marriage was going to be a corrective to gay male sexual culture, that in a way it was going to end AIDS. Straight people think or thought that gay marriage was going to be monogamous and it was going to produce these privatized consumer units just like straight people and all this kind of thing. Now we have the monkeypox thing going on in the United States. And what it's revealing is that gay male sexual culture has never ended. It's always been a collective sexual culture. That's an oppositional culture. And that's organized in the same way it's always been organized, even though it doesn't have any politics behind it anymore. And it's not rebellious or whatever. But so all these ideas of taming and controlling gay people have produce this false image. So I, I don't think it actually was normalized. I think we got changed. Now, the original idea of gay liberation was to transform the society so that everybody would have more choices in terms of their sexuality and their gender identity and relationships. But the, the reverse has happened. Society has transformed us. And we've been pushed into these boxes of acceptability that do not correspond with how people really live. And when you find authentic voices, they still are repressed. As a writer, if you look at American fiction, I mean, there still is no lesbian novel that's ever been on the bestseller list of, of the New York Times since 1956 with The Price of Salt by Patricia Highsmith, right? You know, there's a kind of canned white gay male fiction that is very, very repetitive. And then now there's a variant on it where you have men of color, but sometimes who are writing in the same formula. And things that are actually experimental or actually sexually explicit do not get published and don't get engaged. So there's a real whitewashing and manipulation of all of this. And anyway, to get back to the original point, I just think that both real visibility and corporate fake visibility have not changed the fact that straight people consider themselves to be superior. And that has maintained. And they need homophobia so that they can feel better. And homophobia is not a phobia. It's a pleasure system. It makes people feel uplifted about themselves and better about themselves. And just to get to your final point there about the right wing needing targets, they have plenty. I mean, refugees are their, one of their favorite targets, right? What's going on right now with people from the, crossing the southern border being put on buses and planes and sent to 
cities that they don't even know where they're going and no one knows that they're coming, you know, by the governors of Texas and Florida. I mean, this is incredible. This is something we've never seen before, this level of hatred and dehumanization. And then, of course, separating Black Americans from voting rights. I mean, this is the number one strategy for keeping these people in power. So it's a collapse. It's a complete collapse of our structures, which weren't working in the first yeah. place. Yeah. It's so interesting hearing both of you talk because I'm barely pushing 30, which has terrified me significantly. And it's so and so obviously I've been gay for a lot less time than you guys have. But it, it's interesting to see how things have changed, how the hopes you had in the past didn't become realized in the same way. And I feel like as an African, we still need our moment of visibility because we're at a different stage in time. But like you're saying, Sarah, we can't pin all our hopes to visibility because it doesn't just work. And so I think instead of looking to the US or Europe as this model we must follow, it's important to see the pitfalls and to see how we avoid those pitfalls and build stronger, more resilient kind of movements. I also wanted to ask both of you, because you've been doing this work for a really long time, how do you avoid disillusionment? How do you avoid burnout? How do you keep going? What propels you? I mean, I've never burnt out because I find the whole thing absolutely fascinating. And, you know, people's creativity around their need for change is incredibly inspiring. And also, I have been lucky enough to be parts of movements, some of which have been quasi-successful or have actually accomplished certain kinds of paradigm shifts, and that's very, very inspiring as well. So, I mean, my takeaway is, I think the way to not burn out is to be very concrete, to have demands that are reasonable, winnable, and doable, to run real campaigns that have actual goals, and to try to get victories, because movements need victories. And if you, if you get too lost in the weeds of the bigger, bigger, bigger problems that movements can't address in the immediate, then you get defeated and you lose your energy. So don't dissipate your own energy or the energy of others. That, that would be my advice. Sound advice? Unlike Sarah, there have been times when I've felt burnt out. But the way I kind of keep on going and keep on burning rather than burning out. And the way I have witnessed others doing so is through relationships, relationships. and through the building of relationships. And while I totally, um, well, look, I take all of Sarah's points and I, I don't think we differ so much in, in our analysis about sort of the corporate gay image. And we certainly don't differ in an analysis of, of the difference between, you know, people being nice to you and like having the right to, dignity and and security and bodily integrity uh, of course that that right is is primary but i'm really struck by the way relationships and all sorts of relationships whether they're the relationships with your chosen family in a hijra house in india or in a queer family in an american inner city or whether they're more sort of lateral relationships with neighbors and people who you pray with or pray for, as in the case of, of this amazing Indian community I write about in South India, the way they have kind of kept going and not necessarily kept thriving, but moved forward by insisting on remaining connected to their home community and in, in providing uh, some kind of faith service to their community that is a consequence of their queerness. 
that those relationships create systems of resilience and potentially systems of resistance too that are very sustainable. I mean, I think this is the thing that Amokar Cabral says. He says, we're fighting for people. We're not fighting for ideas. We're fighting for real people. And, you know, the people, I guess, do buoy you throughout all the work that you do. My dogs agree. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that is very interesting is the way that our fates are really twinned. So with the reversal of Roe v. Wade in America... A lot of NGOs in Africa are basically saying that they're going to be completely unable to provide contraceptives, family planning to people in Africa. And in the same way, the kind of war against homosexuality, right wing evangelical churches in the U.S. have decided that the U.S. is this lost Babylon and they're kind of exporting that kind of war to Africa for funding conferences and that kind of thing. And I guess I wanted to ask for both of you. Mark, I guess, from the more African perspective and Sarah from the more American perspective, how do we stop becoming a pawn? Because for so much of African history, we've been a pawn in the Cold War. We've been a pawn in globalization. How do we find our own agency as a continent, I guess? Big question, I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is, it is the question. It is the question about self-determination. It is the question about um, agency. That's, I think, at the core of, of, of what I do and what I believe Sarah does too. I don't think there's an easy answer. I, I don't feel like I can prescribe an easy answer. I, I suppose what I can talk about is the mm-hmm. power of examples I've seen. What's so dangerous about that porn routine that you speak about, that porn trap, is that by identifying as queer or as LGBT, according to, to the Western model, you attract fire and you substantiate the myth or the canard that your identity is a Western imposition. And, and, and how to get out of that trap is really difficult for queer Africans who do identify sort of culturally, identify politically with a lot of the freedom, with a lot of the cultural expression from RuPaul to Beyonce that comes from the United States. And the approach that I find most interesting is one which kind of, rather than latching on to a globalized identity, sort of downloads and indigenizes certain facets or elements of a globalized identity and finds ways of rooting them in the lived experience of where you are. And I think the Indian movement has been particularly successful in this regard, in the way that, for example, the campaign to decriminalize homosexuality in India. Yeah, that was quite big. But what was really powerful about that campaign was the way It used examples from the West and it used jurisprudence from the West, but it also used the Mahabharata and it used Mm. all the expressions of gender fluidity that exist in Hindu mythology. It also used the language, the liberatory language of, of Nehru and other Indian liberators and fused that together 
with examples that it might have taken from elsewhere. There's something similar happening in Nigeria that I find very interesting in the way Nigerians are looking to Yoruba traditions and to gender fluidity in Yoruba deities, not in a kind of, in a nativist way that divorces them from the globalized world of which they are also part, but that brings them together with that world. We see it in South Africa really powerfully in in the way that younger queer South Africans are claiming space in their society as sangomas or traditional healers because it has long been accepted that if you are gender non-conforming, if you are born in a female body but have an appearance that is very male, that this might be because you're close to a male ancestor. And that link to the male ancestor comes with certain gifts that you might be able to use in your community. And I suppose what's interesting about this is is that queer sangomas have always existed in Southern African culture. But what's interesting is is the way your generation of queer South Africans are quite mindfully and purposefully claiming that space as a way of rooting themselves in where they are rather than in some globalized ether of queer utopias. Mm. I think that's true. It is a very inventive, ingenious kind of strategy because, I mean, we are here. This is where we live. And also the frameworks for understanding are different. Sarah? Well, of course, I know I can't say anything about what Africa should do or could do or anything (laughs) like that. But I will say, you know, I see two different opposing strategies and one is more utopian and the other is more realist, perhaps. But I think the recent pandemics have proven yet again that viruses have no borders. Mm. And if we really want to control viruses and we're really interested in health, which I'm not saying that any government actually is, but if we are, we, we need a global health care system, not just national health care, in which every person in the world has access to the same standard of care. And that that's the only way to control future pandemics. So that's the utopian way. The cynical yet realist thing is that wealth is in you know such small hands now. And we have these new phenomena of super donors, people like Mackenzie Scott, who is the yeah. ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, right? And she's giving away her billions of dollars, which of course were earned by exploiting huge numbers of people. But anyway, these people have the money to substitute for government programs. So if the U.S. government stops funding family planning and abortion services globally, they have the money, the private sector, to step up and replace that money. And I know that right now the only globalization that exists is corporate globalization. And in some ways that's expanding that. And I understand all the things that are undesirable about that. Yet we are in an actual crisis of services And that money does need to be replaced. And, you know, the U.S. government has become like the dusty rear sub-basement of global capital, right? Anyway, I mean, the Democratic Party is so inept and cannot do anything. So maybe this is where those, those programs need to get their funding from. Yeah, I think those are two very big but very interesting ideas to think with because we can't sit and do nothing. That's the thing. Every... Strategy will have its downfall, its pitfalls may be difficult to do, but, you know, we have to start thinking big and we have to start thinking together because 
it's very cliched, but, you know, it's very, like, airport ad, but, like, we are a global community, kind of, a little bit sometimes. I'd like us to move now to our tribute section. In this episode, we are in solidarity with the 15 journalists and one media worker currently held in pre-trial detention in Diyarbakir in Turkey. You can read their names in the show notes. We have some tributes to those being unfairly detained, and we'll start with Marco Lissa. So thank you, Efemia. I um, would like to read a poem by a South African freedom fighter and former political prisoner named Jeremy Cronin, who was arrested and held in solitary confinement for 180 days and then spent a lot more time in jail after he was tried. That was without trial. And I have never been in solitary confinement. I have never been in jail. There's something about it, the one particular poem of his that, that has always moved me. And I read it when the volume that it's in inside was still banned in South Africa. And somehow or other, I was given a contraband copy of this book. And the poem that has stuck with me and that I thought of for today is called For Comrades in Solitary Confinement. Every time they cage a bird, the sky shrinks a little. Where without appetite, you commune with the stale bread of yourself, pacing to and fro to shun one driven step on ahead of the conversationist who lurks in your head. You're an eyeball, you are many eyes, hauled to high windows, to glimpse, dopplet by mesh, how, how, how long, the visible, invisible, visible across the sky, the question mark, one so ibis flies. Thank you, Mark. My own tribute comes by Egyptian author Nawal el-Sadawi, who was imprisoned by the Egyptian government in 1981. She wrote, while imprisoned, home is where you are appreciated, safe and protected, creative and where you are loved, not where you are put in prison. My hope is that the Turkish government will release the 15 journalists and one media worker and commit to making Turkey a home for freedom of expression. Thank you. And I just want to say to everyone in the world who is telling the truth in the face of power that we thank you, as small as that is, and you are our only hope for progressive change. Thank you so much, Sarah. And thank you, too, to our listeners. Thank you for tuning into The Empty Chair. Thank you so much, Sarah and Mark, for being here. Catch us on the next episode. Special thanks to Ephemia, Mark and Sarah for sharing your wisdom, meticulous research and for your fierce activism. This is the final episode of season five and we're so grateful to everybody who has been supporting The Empty Chair. We're taking a short break, but we'll be back with season six very soon. In the meantime, we hope you'll listen to all the beautiful episodes of this season and go back to the archives of our earlier seasons. This episode was produced by Andre Burnett. Thanks to our podcast executive producer, Lara Baxbaum, to Penn South Africa board members, Kate Hyman, Yawande Amatozo, and the whole of the board of Penn South Africa, and to our wonderful interns. And thanks too to Amy Bell Malautzi and Jahan Jones Rodkowski for their support. 
If you'd like more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned rises across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversations and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa, and the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening.